Welcome to podcast 114 of the Star Trek Academy. This time we're looking at the first two episodes of Star Trek Lower Decks Season 4, and we're talking about them together in one podcast because Paramount Plus released them on the same day. I'm the Academy Media Professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy Philosophy Professor, Rodney Cup. And we always start with a brief summary, so if you're not listening right away after the episode premieres, you can refresh your memory. Now, our two episodes today have the titles Tuvix and I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee. And with our summaries of those two episodes, here is Dr. Michael Merrick. Thank you. In the first episode, Tuvix, the Cerritos crew is assigned to transport the decommissioned USS Voyager to Earth for museum display. But a transporter accident causes Billups and Dr. Tana to be combined, just like Tuvok and Neelix were in Voyager. Remember that Captain Janeway essentially killed Tuvix in order to separate them back out as individuals. But the Billups and Tana hybrid, known as Tillips, doesn't want that to happen. So they plot to combine more and more pairs of crew members as allies. Ultimately, the new Vulcan crew member, Talin, causes all of the combined crew members to merge into one single huge organism in the brig. Talin and Tendi use the individual personality traits in the organism to divide the individuals back out. So all back to normal there. For their excellent work in the crisis, Boimler, Tendi, Talin, and surprise, Mariner, are all promoted to lieutenant junior grade, but not Rutherford. And in the final scene, we see an unknown ship disable the weapons of a Klingon ship and destroy it. So that's the first of our episodes. In the second episode, I have no bones, but I must flee. Mariner overhears Ransom say that soon she will not be his responsibility, and she goes rebellious to force him to bust her back to Ensign, because that is what she perceives he plans to do. Cerritos is sent to a menagerie space station where the alien owner has accidentally put two humans on display. Mariner, Ransom, and a new crew member go to recover the humans, but while they're there, a cute little creature, a moopsie, escapes its cage, and it's dangerous because it feeds by drinking the bones of animals or sometimes people. They finally managed to get the moopsie back in its cage and discovered that the caged humans wanted to kill the keeper, Narge, so they could just take over the highly profitable Menagerie space station. Meanwhile, the new lieutenant's junior grade are coping with their new rank. Rutherford is trying everything to earn promotion, but he's always beat out by another ensign. Finally, he divulges that he's turned down promotion several times in order to stay with his lower deck shift and friends, So he finds out he can just simply ask for what he'd previously earned, and so he gets promoted too. Even though Mariner thinks Ransom has been messing with her, he explains that her past commanders, who have promoted and then demoted her, were bad leaders. He's resolved to not let her acting out bait him, and she has his unwavering support. So the question now is, will Mariner stop acting out? And then also in this episode, we see that same alien ship as we saw last episode. It disables and destroys a Romulan ship. And we still have no clue as to who the aliens are. So that's a relatively quick summary, at least, of these two episodes we're talking about today. All right. Well, we created this podcast to talk about the philosophy and the themes 
and the morals to the story of these new Star Trek episodes. But it helps put those things in context if we first look at some production details. Design, character development, continuity with past Trek. Even though these are two separate episodes, we're going to talk about them together and we'll probably go back and forth. Yeah. I think uh, uh, right off the bat, Rodney, we should note that both of these episode titles are references to other things. The title Tuvix, and that's spelled T-W-O, T-W-O-V-I-X, is a play on the Voyager episode title Tuvix, T-U-V-I-X. And I Have No Bones, Yet I Must Flee is pretty clearly inspired by Harlan Ellison's dystopian post-apocalyptic short story featuring evil AIs, and it was entitled, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. I must say it was really nice seeing Voyager on screen again. Now, we've got a very brief look at Voyager in Picard Season 3 on static display at Geordie's Starfleet Museum, but it was nice to see it in Lower Decks, and we got a really very detailed animated recreation of the, the Voyager sets. And, you know, it made me think, remember last season, Lower Decks visited Deep Space Nine. And, of course, we had the Lower Deck Strange New Worlds crossover. And you also remember the Ensigns have flown Zephyrin Cochran's ship, Phoenix. And Lower Decks has also included some species from the animated series, the original Star Trek animated series. And plus, I've been trying to remember which episode, but and maybe it was one of the alternate timeline episodes, but there has been a past reference to Voyager being on display at Sarfleet headquarters also, as we saw in this episode. So Lower Decks has really touched on pretty much every other Star Trek series except the original series and and maybe Prodigy, Mm. unless that's where we heard about the static display reference. So I think they're very deliberately making those connections to the other incarnations of Star Trek. And note along those lines that this episode says Voyager will end up in Earth orbit after this period of ground-based static display. But we know that some 20 years from now, it will be in a different star system in Geordie's museum, because that's what we saw in Picard. You know, and I think these writers and, and producers, Mike McMahon, you get the sense that all of them are super fans. And, you know, of course... They're going to make those connections. I think it's probably only a matter of time until we get connections with uh, the original series. It wouldn't surprise me at all. I, I, I think they're fans, and I also think they have aggressive ways of doing the research. So it isn't mm-hmm. just the writer sitting there at a keyboard who automatically remembers such and such an episode. I think they have ways of doing that research to refresh their memory which star system or which species to reference and things. So, But it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's a good example of why Lower Decks really is. It's animated in a kind of a children's animation style, but the adult audience is certainly part of the intended audience there. Of course, these two episodes are setting up a new antagonist that will presumably come into Federation space at some point and need to be confronted by Starfleet and by Cerritos, like Strange New Worlds has done so successfully, Lower Decks continues this season to primarily be an episodic or what I call a mission of the week series, but they have the ongoing B story arc or story arcs. The Paclids were a previous threat that uh, took several episodes to develop and then be resolved, and it, it sure seems that this season is going to have a similar approach there. Yeah, and just briefly, I mean, maybe we could speculate at this point what's behind this ship. The last thing we saw in Season 3 was the reflection of Badgie 
in Rutherford's old implant. Uh, maybe Badgie has something to do with this. Maybe it's William Boimler. Remember, we know he's presumed dead, but working for Section 31. Yeah. And another possibility I was thinking of, Peanut, Hamper, and Agamus working together to do something awful. Any other possibilities here come to mind, Michael? There are lots of things out there in the decades of Star Trek that they could tap. It could be something brand new that they create just for this threat. But the examples you give would have been set up last season. I wouldn't put it past the writers and producers to do that kind of things set up in a current season, something they're going to come back to in a future season for a threat or bad guys. I do have several short takes uh, to look at here, particularly in the episode Tuvix. There are so many characters and references to the Voyager series that it isn't worth our time to try to list all of them. And if you go out on the Internet, you'll be able to find lists of those there. They're almost endless. To me personally, in my opinion, many of them are, not from the best Voyager episodes. You have the killer clowns, the macro virus. I don't know what you think about Dr. Chaotica, but he wasn't my favorite. The giant space newts. And yes, the Neelix cheese is a real thing from the first season Voyager episode learning curve. You didn't love Threshold, huh? That's not your favorite Voyager episode? I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. And I wasn't all that thrilled the first time around when cheese infected the gel packs as they did in this episode. The opening credits. Did you study the opening credits? Every season. Minutely? Yeah. Yeah. When the, the first episode, I want to take a look at them and in particular at that space battle. Because it's getting more and more complex. Uh, there are two new ships flying into the scene from the upper right. There are a couple of additional Klingon ships. There are some new energy blasts and on the upper left, there's something cylindrical that looks like the whale probe from yep. the voyage home. Yeah, and of course that raises the question whether we'll be seeing that probe or one of its comrades in Lower Decks this season. I wonder. You know, I think it would be interesting to see all of this scene from the credits happen in an actual episode. <laughs> and I don't know that's the intent. I could imagine a, an epic space battle like that in a season finale or even a series finale whenever that time comes. If the whale probe does come back, now remember that Starfleet ships now have cetacean crew members, so that might help communicate with it. Right. In the Robin Hood holodeck program, the voice referring to saving Maid Marian is Brent Spiner, is Data, I'm pretty sure they lifted that right out of the audio from the Next Generation episode, Cupid, which is the one in which Worf says, I am not a merry man. I didn't notice that. I think right when Shaq sent Anna go into the holodeck, you hear Brent Spiner's voice very, very clearly. It's an interesting parallel in I Have No Bones Yet, I Must Flee. You notice Mariner says she's not going to fall for Ransom messing with her, which Mm -hmm. is why she starts acting out. And later, Ransom says he's not falling for Mariner's games, which is why he almost completely ignores her acting out. So really, in a way, they're paralleling or yeah. opposites of each other. And I have to say that I like Ransom more, so far this season at least, for his approach to Mariner in this episode. He is essentially, in a way, taking steps to accommodate her and to show her that she doesn't need to be acting out as she as she often does. Ransom just, he doesn't seem as self-centered, and it's interesting character development. Yeah, he seems actually very interested in Mariner's career, although 
Uh, he does say that he's twice as smart as all of Mariner's former commanding officers. Freeman accepted, of course. So there is still that ego of his. When Boimler and Tendy have their things boxed up to move, there are several recognizable things from past episodes. For example, Boimler's Tom Paris plate. When he's sleeping the Jeffries tube, he also has his Una Chin Riley Starfleet recruiting poster taped up near where he's sleeping. That's right, that's right. And the Boimler effect plaque. And what it, what stood out to me was his collection of action figures. <laughs> he has Kirk in the green wraparound tunic and Spock with his monster maroon and Archer wearing something I'm not sure what. You know, I was talking about super fans. We see Mariner geeking out on, on Voyager and it appears that she and Boimler know more about Tubix than Freeman does. So they're really super fans just like the rest of us, and we kind of saw that in Strange New Worlds last season, too. Yeah, and they they know the history, as we have seen it in various Star Trek series, they know the history of our favorite characters Mm -hmm. just as well as we do, it seems like. Yeah. The Tucker Tubes are presumably named after Trip Tucker from Star Trek Enterprise. The prop has been around forever. It shows up. All the time, not just in Star Trek episodes. It's never had a name before. Still, nobody knows what <laughs> the tubes do, but they are a nice set decoration. They just kind of fit anywhere the set decorators want them, and they look like something cool is going on. Yeah, I like the self-aware joke that, you know, nobody knows what the tubes do. Nobody knows what the Billups tubes do either, but Billups says he loves them. So. Yeah. The start date for Tuvix is 58724.3. And that is the same, the 58000 start date series in both Lower Deck season two and three. Season one is the 57000 start dates. Now across Star Trek, usually they have a standard formula that one season equals one year. And if they had kept to that, they would be in the 60000 series of Stardates, which would only be about one year before Prodigy Season 1. So I think the, the producers may be trying to keep a little timeline distance between mm. those two series. Plus, remember, these are all 10-episode seasons, whereas the original series, uh, the first season was 29 episodes long. Yeah, And that 29-episode first season of the original series is typically defined as one Star Trek timeline year. So the three Lower Decks seasons, 30 episodes, all set in one calendar year, isn't really that unreasonable if you think about it. I've often wondered about those 29 episodes. That must have been grueling for them. And when the first episode premiered, they were still doing episodes. Back in those days, yeah. they were not very far ahead. In fact, that's why you remember, that's why they made the Menagerie, the two-part Menagerie episode, using all the footage from the cage. They mm-hmm. were so close to deadline that that allowed them get, to get two weeks out of one week of filming. You know, it, It's not at all like today when they finish filming and then premiere as a year off, typically. And we should talk about Talyn. Yes, very happy to see her again. Remember that she was introduced actually in season two of Lower Decks as Mm -hmm. what's essentially a Lower Decks ensign on a Vulcan ship. And I remember saying at the time that I think she was intended as a Vulcan parallel to Mariner. Their faces are even roughly the same shape, except for the ears, of course. In the Tuvix episode, she really wants to go back to her Vulcan ship, but she is part of the science solution 
to the problem of the episode. And I think that in a way she is also a parallel to Spock and Data. You know, most Star Trek series have had a non-human main character. It's almost part of the formula when creating a new Star Trek series. The non-human character is kind of an outside observer of the human condition can be used, the character can be used to make points about human mm. society. And I'd say parenthetically, yeah, Tendi's non-human, but she hasn't really had that comment about humanity role, which I think it's clear that Talin is taking on. Sometimes this formula non-human character does comment about humanity in a humorous way, and so that'll fit right in with Talin in Lower Decks. Yeah, and I'm thinking as far as her real introduction goes here, I thought it was fitting to have her alongside the Lower Deckers at the same time as Lower Deckers are shown on those doomed Klingon and Romulan ships. There's just fits, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, uh, that destroyed Klingon ship, that was the very same one we saw in Episode 9 of Season 2, the one you were referring to. And it's it's too bad, because I would have liked to have seen the young Captain Ma'a encounter the Cerritos at some point. I, I don't think you have to kill him to show, you know, the gravity of this new mysterious threat, which I'm sure is what they're trying to do here. Yeah, no, I agree, certainly. And finally, for this section of the podcast, it was nice to have, It's it was a very brief, but a reference to that Pike thing we're not supposed to talk yeah. about, <laughs> meaning yeah. the Lower Decks crossover with Strange New Worlds. If you are a Lower Decks fan who has not watched the Strange New Worlds episode, Those Old Scientists, please do so. You need to round out your Lower Decks fan experience. Yeah, you owe it to yourself. You really do. Well, with that background on the writing and the production of the episode, we'll shift gears here and talk about meaning. And we're wondering what messages the writers and the producers may have tried to convey to us with this episode or what we can take from it, whatever they were intending. What do you think, Michael? Well, and again, we are looking at these two episodes together, and I think we have big messages looking at them together about self-image and Mm self-worth. Rutherford is struggling to earn a promotion that we find out he's already earned. He doesn't realize that after turning down promotions previously, essentially he could just say, you know, I'm ready, I deserve it, Mm -hmm. uh, and get promoted. Being willing to ask for things you deserve and to stand up for yourself in a respectful way, at least, I think is a message from hmm. from these episodes. Even okay. more so, we got to talk about Mariner. She's been self-destructive for a long time. Yeah. You know, we know she's repeatedly gotten promoted and acted out in order deliberately, it seems, to get busted back to Ensign by what Ransom called small minded commanders. Yeah, it's uh self-sabotage and I you know that's what ties those two plots together in that second episode I think is that actually both Rutherford and Mariner are so are sabotaging themselves but for different reasons of course. Yeah. Now in a previous season we heard that at Starfleet Academy Mariner was a solid leader and was expected to be the first to achieve starship command and we still don't really know what changed that self-image but I I have some thoughts as to as to possibly why. Now, in the past, Mariner said she doesn't want the boredom of meetings that would come with being a lieutenant. But I think in reality, she number one, she's not sure she deserves the responsibility that comes with higher 
rank, even lieutenant junior grade, which isn't that much higher. Mm-hmm. And because she thinks she doesn't deserve it, she doesn't want it. Maybe all those demotions from those small-minded previous commanders have hurt her self-image. Plus, remember when she does save the day by being a badass, she usually is breaking rules one way or the other. And we know that she deep down really believes in Starfleet, so that implies she believes in the rules, even though she's breaking them. And remember here, I think by rules, you mean something that's different than protocol. Protocol sometimes gets in the way of the rules. I think that's what she's been uh, resisting also in all of this. Well, and, you know, she is one who, if she sees there's only one way to save the day, she'll go do it. Right, and to hell with protocol, right? Yeah, so she's she's a complex person, but she's not always helping herself by these things she does. You know, you know Rodney, moving up into command often means leaving friends behind. In today's military, it often means going to a different base or something like that. Hmm. Remember that Kirk... At the beginning of his command on Enterprise, he had his academy friend, Gary Mitchell, in the early part of his command on Enterprise. Picard had Crusher. Cisco only had Jadzia, whose previous host Cisco had been friends with, and which made it kind of strange. Archer had only Trip Tucker as a previous friend. So most of our captains had to start their time as captain or their time on the ship with a bunch of strangers. And they had to build relationships in the, in the relationship in a military style organization between a commander and subordinates, um, may or may not be one of friendship. It depends on a lot of factors. But regardless of all that, Mariner has been in this self-destructive cycle that leads her to being blamed for things that are not her fault. Just because people have come to expect the worst from her because of her past acting out. Uh, right. we saw the same thing in last season's finale. Uh, remember, Everyone thought that she gave a reporter a lot of dirt on Cerritos, but actually she said only good things in her interview with the reporter. I remember hearing years ago uh, an interview, it was probably on National Public Radio, that pointed out that when we are complimented, it's customary to kind of brush it off, to not really accept the compliment. Oh, you know, it was nothing. It was nothing. But whoever was being interviewed said it's really healthier for us to respond with something like, well, thank you. Yeah, I thought I did a good job, too. So don't brag, but accept compliments and acknowledge when you are good at something you do. It's almost like the the opposite of imposter syndrome, you, you might mm. say. And I think that we see that going on here. Both Rutherford and Mariner in their subplots contain a message about that, particularly a message about what's called emotional intelligence, which, which essentially means the ability to regulate our emotions. Too many things today seem designed to reduce our self-image, reduce our self-respect. If we let them, we hear all kinds of accusations that social pressures via social media leads to depression. Almost every time we hear about a shooting, which happens way too often in the United States, it's almost always a result of uncontrolled anger, lack of emotional control. So I think it's an important message of both of these episodes to take control of our emotions and therefore of our self-respect. In Tuvix, Mariner's go save the ship message to Boimler carries exactly that message that, That's that right. he's good at what he does and he can do yeah. this, but she doesn't really apply it to herself as easily. And we know that she's much more emotional about friends and about the Starfleet mission as a whole than she uh, lets on. So again, I think the lesson is to value yourself, 
Don't minimize your accomplishments. Take control of your emotions and stand up for yourself. And I think that those messages cross both of these two episodes. I think it's connected to that a little bit, but there's also a theme about friendship here. Remember that Boimler didn't want to get promoted because it would ruin his friendship with Mariner. And Tendi doesn't want to lose her friendship with Rutherford, uh, that would come from, the loss would come from being of different ranks. Rutherford's determined to get promoted to preserve his friendship with Tendi and the others. So is that, again, what's been motivating Mariner to avoid getting promoted or to getting herself busted back down to Ensign? You know, I think she has mentioned that in previous episodes about losing friends who had been promoted or losing friends by being promoted. I, I believe she hasn't mentioned that in previous episodes. And maybe that's why she could be a leader at Starfleet Academy, where essentially all the cadets in her class were equal. But again, maybe she is learning a bit, because she did recommend Boimler for promotion, even right. though she would expect that there would then be a rank difference and there might be uh, some kind of complication to their connection. Yeah, all these folks are growing. Uh, Mariner is growing. You know, it's not quite sure, you know, where the process will end or, you know, where she's going with it. But 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 I think um, it's good. These character yeah. development arcs over multiple seasons, I think, are are what sets this aside from old school TV where the characters never changed once. Yeah, everything resets. Yeah. Yep. But, Michael, I wanted to talk about that first episode a little bit, which is an ethicist nightmare. Uh-huh. Let's just, let's just be clear. Um, so I don't know what the two plots of those episodes have in common. You've got chaos aboard a Voyager, uh, the Cerritos crew members getting Tuvixed. What do they have in common? I don't know. So I'm just going to talk about killing Tuvixes, okay? And I think Tendi in that episode is the anti-Janeway. Uh, she says that she doesn't think it's ethical to kill to Illips to get their friends back. And Freeman says she doesn't want to kill him either. I was thinking maybe they could just replicate to Illips and then untuvix one of them, you know, but they need more time for that. And that's initially what they wanted to do. They're like, let's just go to a star base and try to figure this out. But thankfully, maybe, uh, Talin solves this problem for them and fuses all the tuvixes into this nonsentient, Tuvixy meatball. So, you know, maybe all the Tuvixes are dead and they can go ahead and get their friends back because they don't have to worry about that anymore. But I think this episode might have an answer to Janeway's problem that won't satisfy everyone. This is like a game of diplomath. So let me just give you this. So, uh, Talin advises against socializing with Teillips. Remember that? Yeah. And she also says that, well, I don't know anyone on board, so I can be impartial. You realize the more they get to know to Ellipse, the less impartial they're going to be, and the more difficult it will be to kill them. Now, it's not as if they take any joy in doing it. They've just lost their friends with whom they were connected, and they want them back. So maybe the idea is not to look at personhood as some abstract property everyone has, including to Ellipse, but is something belonging to beings that are connected to others. Hmm. All right. So just stay with me here. I've borrowed this from a paper by Susan Sherwin on abortion. It's sort of a feminist take on the moral issue of abortion. And she says 
that you've got these non-feminist philosophers arguing that the moral status of the fetus can be decided by determining whether and when they satisfy these abstract, metaphysical, non-relational criteria of personhood. Things like, you know, well, is it sentient? Does it have moral agency? Is it self-aware? Things like that. Now, Sherwin says that's not the proper way of conceiving of personhood. She says that persons are members of a social community which shapes and values them, and personhood is a relational concept that must be defined in terms of interactions and relationships with others. And maybe that's why Billups and Ta'ana and the rest of them have a greater claim to life than their Tuvixes, right? They have these long-standing relationships with many others, and Ta'ilips doesn't. I mean, he just got there. And maybe there's a comment on impartiality in ethics. You know, Talin says, I'm impartial as if it's this good thing. But in the end, they need Tendi's knowledge of the personalities of all of these people to separate them from this meatball, right? These connections become valuable in solving this scientific problem. And... You know, this idea of impartiality, it tells us that to Ellips counts just as much as Billups and to Anna. You know, adopting this attitude, though, is that really true? I mean, how could Tendi be so willing to abandon two officers she has served with in favor of this guy she doesn't even know? Okay, so I'm not saying I agree with this, Michael, <laughs> but it is a way to resolve Janeway's dilemma and deny that she is a murderer, which I think all of us would like to do. And maybe some of us think that for some reason, which we don't quite understand yet, we should. I don't know. Well, I would be happy to resolve the dilemma about Janeway, but this, well, this ethical perspective you've described could lead us down lots of, lots of rabbit holes and we need to not stay too far, far away from Star Trek. But, you know, if personhood is defined by relationships in that, in years past, like, for example, 19th century enslaved people who were not persons under the law. Yep. That makes me uncomfortable coming back yes. and trying to apply that sort of thing to, to ellipse. It's, yep. it's, it's really complicated. And you said you don't agree with it. You were explaining it for us, but, uh, I think it is very, a very thorny issue. And, and Michael, that is exactly. <laughs> What gives me pause about this? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's troubling, potentially so. And, you know, Talin's sort of Vulcan coldness about this is kind of disturbing and dark when she talks about her impartiality. Yeah. You know, Rodney, I didn't expect it when you started discussing the ethics here, but you are connecting back to a long-term Star Trek theme that has to do with family and with found family building relationships with, with others, close close family-type relationships with others. Neelix and Tuvok were family uh, to the others on Voyager through their shared experiences. Mm-hmm. Both the original Tuvix and the one in these in these episodes, they don't have such relationships. They're, they're brand new. But it's still troubling, including Talyn's perspective, that essentially it's better not to get to know you in case I have to kill you. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I don't yeah. think that's a takeaway from the episode that the writers and the producers intended, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's one we should take away either. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. In fact, I would say it's much easier to discriminate against kind of broad, anonymous groups that you've never really encountered personally, as it is if you meet someone from one of those groups and get to know them and understand their life experience and things. So I don't think we're going to be able to answer this one, but it's a, it's an interesting discussion. Is it time for our final thoughts here? Sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, how about these episodes? Did we like them? Uh, what value do they bring to the Star Trek universe and the fans, do you think? I mean, I like them. There are a couple of elements here and there that were pretty over the top for Star Trek, but it is a comedy series, and so they, they work. It was nice just to have the series back, and it was nice to have this double feature of two episodes we're talking about. Now, it does kind of tie into the promotion of Star Trek Day, which was this past Friday as we're recording this, and, and Star Trek Day did not have the whole day long of panels and things, largely because the actors and the writers are on strike. Right. Um, but it did focus on Star Trek, the animated series, and represented its uh, 50-year anniversary. So, yeah, writers and actors on strike, they're not allowed to do anything to promote the series that they have appeared in. I'm not sure how the three Lower Decks voice performers could appear, unless either they're in a different union, which I don't think is true, but I don't know for sure. Or maybe, you know, these things are done well ahead of time. Maybe their parts were recorded before the sag after strike even began. Yeah, it could be they had prepared this well before the strike, and they ended up keeping what they could, given that the strike is in progress. Um, I've seen comments. I've not seen it yet, but I've seen comments that, you know, this this time Star Trek Day is less elaborate than it has been in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah. As far as I could tell, it was a 22-minute video. That was okay. That was it. Mm, all Interesting, right, well, I, but 22-minute video. I, I'll um, check that out. I think I also like the episodes, Michael. I think I like the second one a little bit better than the first. I'm not sure I can explain why exactly. I, but I noticed that, uh, Mike McMahon wrote that first episode and, and it did leave me with a few question marks, which I haven't gone into. And I suppose maybe I won't for the, for the sake of keeping this at a nice digestible length, but I'm, I'm very happy to have a uh, lower decks back, of course. We are clearly kicking off another season using this Mission of the Week episodic format, but with the longer-term story arcs, the bad guy story arc, and the character development story arcs of the ongoing characters. If not next week, then soon we will see about these new baddies going forward. Right. Hey, and speaking of, um, you know, we were talking about how episodic series uh, reset, particularly the original series. I think these promotions are permanent, Michael. And I say that because in this second episode, we were given a final long look at those bunks and the rear window after Boimler, Tendy, and Rutherford left them. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like saying goodbye. I don't expect to see them demoted anytime soon. I guess I don't think so either. I think that they will still be doing things as Lieutenant Junior Grade that are not too distant from their lower decks duties. Mm-hmm. So I think that the the name of the series will still be justified. But no, I, I expect them to say where there are, and that's a, a satisfying thing here in season four. Yeah, after three seasons, we can't keep them in instance forever, particularly given all their heroism, 
right? As unorthodox as it might be. But I think that about does it for this podcast. And we thank you for joining us. And we will be back next week to reflect on episode three of this season. We invite you to stay in touch with us on our social media feeds. We're on Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook at Trek underscore Academy and Tumblr at Trek Academy without the underscore. And you can Google Star Trek Academy podcast and look for our red Vulcan hand salute logo. And also don't forget to subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for the Star Trek Academy podcast.